On Tuesday, the Garda Commissioner hosted an event at the Gresham Hotel in Dublin where 100 years earlier a meeting was held to establish the force. This podcast is a recording of that event. Before we begin, I would like to sincerely thank the staff at the Garda Press Office for facilitating the broadcast of this podcast. I do hope you enjoy the show. Okay, good evening, ladies and gentlemen. As Deputy Commissioner of Garda Shikon, I'm honoured to welcome you all here this evening to the Gresham Hotel. I would like to extend a warm welcome to our Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, Minister James Brown, uh, Chief Constable of the uh, PSNI, um, Simon Byrne, our Commissioner, of course, Drew Harris, uh, Lord Mayor of Dublin, Councillor Alison Gilliand, invited guests, serving and retired members of Angarda Shikona, family and friends. This evening, we are celebrating the foundation of Angarda Shikona, or the Civic Guards, in this hotel on the 9th of February, 1922. We had, of course, planned for the ceremony to take place uh, on that date in 2022. However, due to COVID, we had to postpone. The theme of this evening's event is, has Ungarda Siakana lived up to the ideals of those who met in this hotel 100 years ago? To explore this theme, we have a number of key speakers, followed by a panel discussion, which will be moderated by uh, Ms. Anne Passam. Sergeant John Reynolds will set the historical context of the meeting that took place in this hotel on the 9th of February. 22. Historian, author and teacher Dr Lee McAniff will then explore the early, early days of this organisation and talk about some of the initial challenges and successes. Following these presentations, Anne Casson will moderate an open panel discussion involving Commissioner Drew Harris, retired Guard Commissioner Noreen O'Sullivan, former Minister for Justice Nora Owen, Sergeant John Reynolds, Dr. Lee McAniff, Senior Counsel Michael Staines, grandson of Michael Staines, the first Garda Commissioner. Just a few words in relation to housekeeping, emergency exits. So we've, we have one here to my left as I look, we've one to the right and one at the rear. To ensure the enjoyment of all of us here present and to minimize disruption, I would ask you all to put your telephones on silent, please. And finally, as I have alluded to already, this will be live streamed uh, for the duration of the event. Our first speaker this evening is our Commissioner Drew Harris. So I will now call on you, Commissioner, to make some opening remarks, please. Thank you, Anne-Marie, thank you. Ministers, invited distinguished guests, colleagues, ladies and gentlemen. I'm honoured to welcome you all to this symbolic location to mark what is a very special occasion for Angarda Shikana. We come together this evening to commemorate our colleagues who came before us, established our service and committed themselves to serving communities over the course of the past century. We especially remember those who have passed on in particular those who have died in the execution of their duty and whose valiant efforts remain with us always. We are here in the Gresham Hotel. It was here in the Gresham Hotel on the 9th of February, 1922, 
that Ireland's National Policing and Security Service was formed at the inaugural meeting of its founding committee. In its transition from the Royal Irish Constabulary to what later became Angarda Shikana, the formation of the Civic Guard that night paved way for stability in Ireland and the establishment of the nation's unarmed policing service. By that September of 1922, and following the passing of the Constabulary Ireland Act in Parliament, members of the new policing service began arriving in cities, towns and villages to begin working in and with communities. In the century since, thousands of people have come to dedicate their working lives as Gardaí to protect the people of Ireland. Today, there are over 14,000 highly trained Gardaí working nationwide. The work that is undertaken by Gardaí each day is focused on, this, on the safety of the people we proudly serve. You will see in the forefront of tonight's booklet that each of you will have received on arrival this evening a seminal quote from our very first Garda Commissioner, Michael Staines, who was present here on the 9th of February a century ago. It is these words that encapsulate the mission that continues to be at the very centre of all that we do as Gardaí. We are as much com committed to this now as our founding members were then, to succeed not by force of arms or numbers, but on our moral authority as servants of the people. While our overarching mission has been a constant, so much, has held, so much else has changed about the work of Gardaí since those very first weeks and months of our organisation. The breadth of duties has shifted considerably. Our responsibilities now extend into many different areas, both nationally and internationally. And as Ireland has changed, so too has Angarda Shikana. We are now an organisation working across specialist and dedicated units in the areas of priority, such as drugs, organised crime, roads policing, and domestic and sexual abuse. We continue to put in place major ICT infrastructure suitable for modern day policing. We are introducing a new operating model to provide more localised services at a divisional level. And even now, how we look is changing as we introduce a new, more modern operational uniform. Through the decades, Gardaí have prevented and detected huge amounts of crime. We're having an impact on targeting and disrupting organized crime groups, an area where we've recently seen considerable progress. There have been incidents of crime that have truly shocked and dismayed us during the last century. And as a policing service, we've encountered and responded to, deep, to deeply unsettling periods in Ireland's past. Through the decades, members of Angarda Shikana have willingly faced danger to protect the people of Ireland. And that fact is sadly made clear when we think of our 89 Garda colleagues killed in the execution of their duty. We remembered them at our memorial service on Saturday, on Saturday last, and we also remember all those who were injured in the course of their duties. Despite all of this, we continue to strengthen our service based on our strong tradition of policing by consent and in partnership with people and communities. The development of community-based policing in Ireland over the past century has played an integral part in how we operate today as a service. And Garda Shikana is also unique in that we have a dual mandate, the National Policing Service and the National Security Service. 
by its nature that the work, the work that is being done by the security side of the organization cannot often be discussed in detail. But what has been achieved in countering the violent threat to this state and others from terrorist organizations is truly remarkable. The work of Angarda Shikana in partnership with other police services, law enforcement agencies and security services in countering these threats is one of the organization's greatest achievements over the last century. As society has evolved, it is important that we also do so as well. In a recent uh, recruitment campaign, over 11,000 people applied to become a member of Angarda Shikana. And it is encouraging that so many people are prepared to step up to protect, serve and support their community. About 40% of applicants were women and there have been an increase in the number applying across a range of ethnic backgrounds. And we are passionate about delivering a policing service that represents every community and so this is a really positive indicator for us all. We now have over 3,300 Garda staff providing a range of critical functions to support policing delivery. This includes IT systems, financial management, crime analysis, legal advice, human resources, and health and wellbeing services. Their input and insights have been invaluable in the development of the organization into a modern policing service. In addition, we've been fortunate to have so many Garda Reserve assist us with our service delivery. Garda Reserves give up their free time to help us provide a policing service. They bring the value of their own personal and professional experiences to the organization, and this is of immense benefit to us and the communities we serve. While we celebrate all the great many things that Angarda Shikhan has achieved over the past 100 years and the benefits to Irish society, we must also reflect this evening on the times we did, not, we did not meet our own high standards. The evolution of our organization of the past century has not been without its difficulties. As in any human endeavor, we've encountered many challenges throughout our history. There were times when we let individuals and communities down, times when we should have done more and should have done better. And for all those times, I want to apologize to those that we may have failed. And Garda Shikana is strongly focused on human rights and ensuring the human rights of every individual we interact with. We are far more aware of the vulnerabilities of the individuals we deal with. We've put in place measures to protect our own personnel from the threat of corruption and to tackle corruption and malpractice if or when it happens. And we encourage our people to speak up if they see an issue so that concerns can be dealt with and dealt with quickly and early but we can't and we won't be complacent. Every day we must work hard to make certain that we follow in the footsteps of the brave members of Angarda Shikana who dedicated their working lives and sacrificed so much to protect the public with dignity and honor. Those who were only ever motivated to work to the highest standards, and that is the real Angarda Shikana. That is why our level of trust among the public is so high. It is why we are regarded as a beacon of community policing and why police services now from around the world come to learn from us. It is because of those dedicated guardians of the peace and they are the best of us. They are the vast, vast majority of us in Angarda Shikana who have and continue to be extraordinarily proud of the privilege it is to wear this uniform and represent this great organisation. 
This evening's event provides us with a meaningful opportunity to reflect on the past, assess the present, and consider the future role of Angarda Shikana in keeping the people of Ireland safe. I look forward to having the opportunity to discuss further in depth with our panel, but for now I will conclude by saying, in 1922 and the immediate years that followed, Gardaí built an organisation that set on a solid, solid foundation. It is our task 100 years on to maintain the community focus that is the bedrock of how we police, and we must continue to modernise to ensure that we can deliver a policing service the country and all of us can be proud of. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Commissioner. Uh, our Minister for Justice, Helen McEntee, will now address us. Thank you, Minister. Thank you very much, Anne-Marie. Um, Commissioner, to all of your team here this evening, Minister Brown, um, Chief Constable, uh, Lord Mayor, Councillors and distinguished guests, it's an absolute pleasure to join you here this, this evening um, for what is a very special occasion to mark 100 years of Angarda Síochána. Uh, as you'll all know, we were supposed to mark this event or this occasion back in February, uh, but of course due to COVID-19, uh, like with so many events and so many special occasions, it had to be postponed. Uh, I was really pleased at the time to be able to contribute to a video, which I'm sure all of you saw at some point, uh, or maybe not, um, but I think it's so much better that we can be in this room in person. Um, and if you're like me, and I suppose you, you love your history, but in particular, uh, you love the visual element of it, the pictures that we've just seen, the uniforms that are here, but also the fact that we're in this very building. Uh, I know that this specific room itself, uh, I was informed earlier, was destroyed uh, quite a number of years ago, but I think even being here in, in this particular space uh, is very special. Uh, as the guard, the commissioner has outlined the Civic Guard, which was initially known as, uh, of course, was born from a meeting which was convened here uh, in the Gresham Hotel in February of 1922, so we really couldn't be marking this in a more appropriate venue. Uh, I want to start by congratulating and by thanking all of those who have been involved in this year's Centillary celebrations. There's obviously a huge amount of events that are happening throughout the year, and just to acknowledge that, uh, and not just the events, but the publications and the engagement and the stories and the gathering of information that is absolutely vital and that is, uh, I think, so uh, fascinating to so many people as well as we learn about our history. Um, I look forward to attending so many of the events and actually I'm looking forward to my first event in my own constituency this weekend uh, in Kells in my hometown. The establishment of a new police service by the Provisional Government in 1922 was one of the key foundation stones of the Free State and Angarda Síochána I believe to this day remains as one of the greatest success stories of this country. Its foundation marking the start of what was a very special relationship between our police force at the time and indeed by the Irish people and one that certainly I would agree with the Commissioner has remained until this very day. Throughout the past century, the organisation, I believe, has stayed true to its founding principles, its defining characteristics being its unique relationship and connection with all of our communities. And I think we all see that within our communities, a relationship which, again, is the envy of so many police forces across the world, particularly when you think about the fact that there are very few police forces that are unarmed uh, and the implications that that has 
through engagement and with uh, engagement in the communities. Uh, and certainly, uh, I would again agree with the Commissioner that we have so many uh, organisations and forces that come to Ireland to look at how we police, uh, and it certainly is something to be very proud of. Our local Gardaí are the people that we turn to, uh, often in the most difficult of moments, but they're also the people who often break the most difficult of news to us. Um, and I think of my own father's death and I think of the wonderful people uh, who came to my house at the time and who were absolutely fantastic, not just for my family, but in particular to my mum and, and who still engage with her. Um, it's a really difficult job, but it's such an important job. And I just want to acknowledge that it's not just about crime and keeping people safe, but you play such an important role uh, in people's lives at a, a very difficult time. Over its first 100 years, uh, Angarda Siakana has faced a succession of challenges from establishing the trust of the people following what had been years and years of unrest, uh, of war, of civil war, uh, the emergency, obviously, World War II, not too long after, the troubles and all that came with that, the growth of organised crime, COVID-19, uh, and indeed the way in which crime has now changed. I received a text on my phone today from permanent TSB saying that there was a problem with my account uh, and if I text them immediately that I, I would be able to resolve it. Obviously, the fact that I'm not with permanent TSB was a, an issue, but I mean, as people become more sophisticated, as they are able to access you in different ways, the Gardaí have had to change and amend the way in which you have responded as well. And on each and every occasion from 1922 to the, 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 the challenges that we face today, I think individual Gardaí have risen to those challenges and indeed have kept us safe. Policing during any time in history I think is hugely challenging but from a personal point of view I'm always um, hugely impressed by those who make the choice and decide that policing is a career for them and to go into Angarda Siakana but I was particularly impressed last Thursday when I got to attend my very first attestation and my first passing out and just I suppose to see the pride uh, in those members, the 102 members, not just uh, in their uniforms, in being there at the, in their college, in the, the, the march that they had, I suppose, I don't know how remembered so well, but to see the pride in their families as well. And it really was a fantastic day. Uh, and I think it reminded me that unlike uh, other types of public service, this is a different kind and a very special type of public service. And as I said, one that I am always very, uh, very, uh, I suppose one that one that I find uh, incredibly uh, fantastic from those who, who dedicate their lives. Uh, indeed, it's particularly remarkable that for 100 years we have had a largely unarmed police service, as I've mentioned, relying centrally on the principle of consent. And this is something, as Minister, that I'm particularly proud of, that we have felt held fast to this principle of a primarily unarmed police service and that an emphasis on service as opposed to force uh, has become embedded in the culture of Angarda Siakana. The hard work carried out by individual Gardaí and by the management in building and sustaining this community relationships over the decades has ensured that serving members, I think, can enjoy that really high level of respect from our community and from the public, one that is both deserved and indeed necessary to ensure that you can do the job that you do. While types of crime, as I've mentioned, have changed over the years, uh, with many existing now that we couldn't have even dreamt of a uh, hundred years ago, and I'm sure in 10 years' time there'll be other types of crime that we wouldn't even have thought of, irrespective of the type of crimes that are being committed, uh, the relationship between 
and Garda Khan and the people hasn't changed. In fact, I think it's even stronger on an individual basis. So many Garda have provided an immense and a valuable frontline service to members of their community in what have been very challenging years. Their dedication has never faltered. And I think that's why uh, for so many people, it's that strength and that connection that it is so difficult in particular where uh, members essentially made that ult ultimate sacrifice and lost their lives in the line of duty. Uh, and at this special occasion tonight, in the same way that we remembered at a very special occasion over the weekend and on Saturday, I want to take a moment to recognise the sacrifices made in particular by the 89 members who have lost their lives in the line of duty over the last century. I think the death of any Garda member is a huge loss, but uh, to the family and friends in particular and to their wider communities, uh, it is really felt. And to each of those 89 men who were called out and, and uh, whose names were called out in the role of honour, they died in their service of the state and for the people of Ireland. And it's so important that we remember them, not just today, but uh, every day. And I'm sure that colleagues do in the work that they uh, do on a daily basis. And the event itself, what was so important for me in speaking to the families was that it was not just about remembering those who died, but also their family members and the huge, uh, the huge challenges that they face. Uh, I said it at the attestation last week when members of Angarda Shiakana get up and go to work. You leave your house, you leave your family members, often your children, uh, your friends, and unlike any other job or very few jobs, you actively put yourself in danger in so many situations and the impact that that has on family members as well, it's, it's important to acknowledge. An effective policing service is of course one that reflects the society in which we operate in. Uh, and while always serving our people, it's been absolutely vital that Angarda Shiakana has evolved over the years and that it has become reflective of the society that it represents. Uh, I want to in particular note the contribution made by female members uh, of Angarda Shiakana, and in particular since the first 12 female recruits joined uh, in 1959. And we saw some pictures up here and I was reminded, uh, and I can't remember what the event was or the discussion, but I was reminded of discussions in the Dáil in and around the time where I think uh, female members, to put it mildly, couldn't be too good looking. They couldn't uh, attract too much unwanted attention. And thankfully, I'm, I'm pleased to say the views in the Dáil have changed and we have certainly moved on from them. Uh, but because of that changing environment and I think because of the fantastic women who have gone before so many here this evening, uh, we've seen increasing numbers of women choosing on Garda Shiakana as a career. Both sworn members and civilian staff are now represented across the organisation, including increasingly, uh, as we've seen within the highest ranks as well. Um, I'm also very pleased that we're being joined by uh, our first female Garda Commissioner, Noreen O'Sullivan, and indeed my predecessor and uh, Fine Gael colleague and former Minister for Justice, Nora Owen, as well. So just to acknowledge each and every one of you here this evening. It is vital, too, that Angarda Shiakana continues to meet its commitment to an increasingly diverse society that we live in today. And the Commissioner has touched on this. Every single person should see themselves reflected in members of Angarda Shiakana and the people who serve and protect them. Uh, and I'm delighted to see the steady increase in that diversity across our police force and the fact that of the 11,000 plus people who apply to Angarda Shiakana, to the new recruitment campaign. We've seen a significant increase in that diverse background. We've also seen an increase in the number of women applying as well. I think it's particularly important when we look at community policing uh, and in particular engaging with people at a much younger age that young people can see themselves reflected in Angarda Shiakana as well. And just want to, to commend the Commissioner and his team for the work that has been done in that area. Now, while I know we've 
heard enough and talked enough about COVID-19 and I'm sure we're at a point where we're, we're all ready to move on. It's very hard um, when we are celebrating such a significant milestone, having come through such a difficult two years. It's very hard not to acknowledge the wonderful contribution uh, of the members of Angarda Siakana to Irish society over the past two years. It's been a very difficult time, I think, for everyone, um, but in particular Angarda Siakana have had to respond to a very fast moving and changing environment, new legislation, new laws, new restrictions, uh, often changing overnight. Uh, you have been asked to implement some very difficult measures all the while supporting some of the most vulnerable people in our society, uh, but you have done so with such professionalism and you have supported people in such a fantastic way from, you know, people standing for 12 hours on the side of the road checking to see where, where people are going to, to, to delivering um, goods from the pharmacy to, to elderly people to obviously uh, continuing to do your daily work as well as everything else. It's, it really has been phenomenal and I just want to acknowledge that work and in particular to acknowledge those who have engaged with victims of domestic violence uh, and assault, uh, those who found themselves unfortunately in a position that many of us weren't in where we were at home safe in our homes but where many others found themselves in extremely perilous situations situations in lockdown. 100 years on from its establishment, Angarda Siakana is still serving local communities in exceptional times and I know that the new members of Angarda Siakana, including the ones that I saw last week uh, in Templemore, will ensure that they continue to do so over the next 100 years. Uh, it's not that we're putting pressure on them now over the next 100 years and the work they have to do, um, but they are here, I think, at a critical time for Angarda Siakana and I want to wish each and every one of our new recruits well. Today is such an important day, I think, in marking off these overall calendar celebrations for this year. I want to thank you for joining me to be here. I want to particularly acknowledge the family members and descendants of those who would have been here uh, in this very first room or who would have taken part uh, in so many of the significant events this year. Uh, it's so important and I think special to have you here and to have uh, your, your family members represented. Um, and really, all I want to say is to those of you um, who are still working and who are retired members, thank you sincerely for your service uh, and I wish you all well into the future. I'm really sorry that I can't stay for all of the event. Unfortunately, myself and my colleague um, have just as questions in the doll directly after this. I would have really loved to have stayed, um, but I'm sure I'll be able to get a recording of it after. So uh, I wish all of our speakers well. And again, thank you for having me here this evening. Thank you. Thank you, Minister. We're now moving on, and our next speaker is uh, John Reynolds. Uh, John is a sergeant in Angarda Siakona. He has a PhD in history, and now he's going to share with us some of those scenes uh, that, that uh, perhaps were present for that inaugural meeting in February 1922. John, over to you. Thank you very much, Deputy Commissioner. Get the slides, guys? Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, ministers, uh, commissioners, guard colleagues, both serving and retired, family members, friends, invited guests, and of course, our distinguished panel of speakers. It is a remarkable privilege for me, 
both as a police historian and also as a serving member in Ungarda Shikana for over 38 years to welcome you here tonight. We're commemorating a momentous event in not only the history of Ungarda Shikana itself, but also in the history of the Irish Free State, which also came into existence in 1922. There are a few organisations that can trace their existence and foundation to a specific day, date, time and place. But in Ungarda Shikana, we are fortunate that we can do exactly that. Thanks to the foresight and dedication of police historians of previous generations, such as the late Sergeant Gregory Allen, the first curator of the Garda Museum, we know for certain that the Civic Guard, which later became on Garda Chicana, was founded here in the Gresham Hotel during a meeting that took place on Thursday, February the 9th, 1922, at 7pm in room 85. We know uh, for sure because of these remarkable letters of invitation to the meeting, this one was, that was handwritten by Michael Collins himself on the 3rd of February, 1922. The other letter was signed by him. Uh, one was addressed to District Inspector John Kearney of Boyle RIC Barracks in Roscommon, and the other to District Inspector Patrick Walsh of Letterkenny Barracks. Uh, the Collins letters are short and to the point and state quite simply, the Irish Provisional Government are setting up a committee for the purpose of drafting a scheme for the organisation of a new police force. Your name has been suggested to the Government for membership and I shall be glad to know if you're willing to serve. So it's a very matter-of-fact wording within the letters, but it really disguises the enormity of the task that was being taken on. The Royal Irish Constabulary, which had policed Ireland for over a century, was in the process of being completely disbanded so the Irish Free State had no police force. When Collins refers to the Irish Provisional Government of the new Free State, it was not a normal government of the type we would recognise today. The turmoil of this period was encapsulated by Kevin O'Higgins, the Minister for Economic Affairs, who said, the government is simply eight young men in City Hall standing amidst the ruins of one administration, with the foundations of another not yet laid, and with wild men screaming through the keyhole. No police force was functioning, no system of justice operating. The wheels of administration hung idle, barred out of recognition by the clash of rival jurisdictions. Quite a dramatic uh, statement for the minister to make. So in reality, the government was made up of young men who had survived the 1916 rising, followed by the War of Independence. They were now tasked with forming a new country almost overnight, which because of the divisions which existed in the Doyle and the IRA over the acceptance of the Treaty of 1921, meant that a bitter and divisive civil war seemed inevitable. Unfortunately, Kevin O'Higgins, who later became Minister for Justice, was assassinated in 1927 as he walked to Mass in Booterstown, County Dublin. These photographs show his funeral cortege passing along the street just outside where we're gathered tonight, coming up O'Connell Street on the way to the pro-cathedral, and Commissioner O'Duffy amongst the mourners on the right there. And I think these photographs illustrate the tragedy and also the legacy of the Civil War because Kevin O'Higgins was killed three years after the Civil War had ended, but he was held responsible for the execution of Republican prisoners during the Civil War, including men that were friends of his and men that he had fought with. So it really encapsulates the tragedy of that period in our history. So coming on to who attended the meeting, uh, we know for certain that 25 men received invitations, and of course it was 1922, so uh, there were no women at the meeting, unfortunately. Uh, we're, for, we're quite certain of the 25 that were here, including some people who have achieved massive prominence since. Obviously, Sergeant Eamon Broy of the Dublin Metropolitan Police, who later became Commissioner uh, Ned Broy. 
We have Michael Staines, our first commissioner, General Ono Duffy, our second commissioner, General Richard Mulcahy, Chief of Staff of the Army, and also Patrick Brennan, TD, who became Assistant Commissioner on Foundation, and they, but left shortly afterwards to go back to the Free State Army. This is the full list of men that we are certain were here, which understandably they attended the meeting in circumstances of secrecy, because in February 1922, for an RIC member to meet Michael Collins probably could have been considered treasonous. Uh, and it might be surprising when you see the list of names to realise that the vast majority of the committee were actually serving or former members of the Royal Irish Constabulary or Dublin Metropolitan Police. That might seem unusual given the animosity that existed towards the police over the previous couple of years, which had seen well in excess of 500 policemen killed between 1919 and 1922. However, Collins needed professional experienced policemen to train the new force and manage it, as his new recruits would be, for the majority, IRA volunteers with no previous policing experience. We're very fortunate as well to have some original primary source documents if I can just go back, yeah, one here. This is uh, papers written by District Inspector Patrick Walsh, who later became Assistant Commissioner Patrick Walsh of the Garda Chicana. And um, Walsh's papers have survived and they're in the Garda archives. And these are the original handwritten notes made during the meeting. There's some fascinating details on them. Um, and I suppose, um, showing the efficiency gained after decades spent in policing and administration, the new committee formed subcommittees to deal with specific aspects, recruitment, training, and inevitably finance. How is the new force going to be financed? Um, some of the details are actually remarkable when you study them in detail, and it shows that the original title for the leader of the new Civic Guard was going to be the Chief Commissioner, but somebody has crossed it out with a pen. And we'll never know why that decision was made. So because of that simple stroke of a pen, we're joined tonight by Commissioner Harris rather than Chief Commissioner Harris. <laughs> but having said that, Commissioner, it's in your gift. If you like that title, we could always go, go back. There is, a, there is a precedent for it. And also in the document, there's a remarkable uh, word, uh, a phrase that's actually underlined as well, Garden of Pubble. The name of the new force was being discussed as well, because obviously the Royal Irish Constabulary were gone. And there was a desire that the new police had to be very Irish in its nature. So Garden of Pubble was actually, and you can see it's underlined, so somebody thought this is a great name for the force, and it's underlined, but never, we actually never use it. But having said that, it does tie in with something later on. Michael Collins made the first reference to the new police at a speech in College Green on March the 5th, 1922. He said, we want your support for in the new police we are forming. It will be, it'll be a people's guard for the protection of all parties and classes. So Collins himself used the phrase people's guard, but again, we may never know why that name was not adopted. So we did become the Civic Guard, and then in 1923, on Garda the police organising committee proved to be remarkably efficient and only 12 days after the Gresham meeting, the first recruits arrived at a temporary training depot at the RDS in Balls Bridge. That was an extraordinary achievement given the challenges that the new Irish Free State faced at the time. The Civic Guard Register, which we're fortunate to have digitised in conjunction with the UCD archives, shows the first 6,000 entries um, and the first 6,000 men that joined. And we can say that while an estimated 97% of the first thousands of men recruited came straight out of the IRA, the register shows that the first two men of Garda rank were PJ Kerrigan and Patrick Marcavinia, both of whom had actually been in the RIC before they joined the Garda. The first public appearance of the Civic Guards, not in uniform, led by our first commissioner, Michael Staines, was in April 22, again, just behind the building here at the Pro Cathedral 
It was the funeral of Frank Lawless TD, a 1916 veteran who had died accidentally out in Ashburn. And this is the first time that the civic guards appeared uh, and it was commented by the papers. Um, Michael Staines appeared as well in, in his capacity as a TD because at that time the commissioner could be a TD as well. And it said that the new civic guard were a splendid body of men drawn from the ranks of the IRA. Uh, shortly after this photograph was taken, the men left the RDS to finish their basic training in Kildare military barracks. And there is a wonderful story about why we moved down to Kildare. Um, the depot was not available at the time because it had not been vacated yet by the Royal Irish Constabulary. So um, we, while we had gone to the RDS in February, when April came along, the, uh, the RDS people decided that the horse show was more important than the Civic Guards. <laughs> and we were asked to vacate the premises and move down to Kildare, which is why we went to Kildare. So when this centenary committee that I'm a member of began planning this event well over a year ago, as the minister suggested, it was um, originally, I suppose, one of the first questions I was asked as the resident historian, why don't we have it in room 85? Well, unfortunately, aggression itself became a casualty of the civil war, which just shows how difficult and how, how tenuous these links are. This is the Gresham Hotel in flames during the civil war of July 1922. But despite that, however, it is wonderful to be on the same site while not in the same room this evening, as this is where Angarda Shikana was founded. So it absolutely has a very special place in our history. So in conclusion, uh, I suppose I've given a lot of thought to this over the last while, and I would sincerely hope that the 25 men who met here that night would be proud of what they had achieved and the circumstances that they achieved it in. Just after one war had ended and another was about to begin, a very unlikely combination of policemen, IRA volunteers and TDs put aside their differences. I mean, these men had been mortal enemies only months earlier. As I said, over 500 members of the RIC alone were killed in the two years. But they put aside their differences, and I think they came together perhaps as Irishmen. And it's remarkable when you look at the RIC men that were requested by Collins to attend the meeting. A lot of them were recommended by local IRA brigades who said, look, this man is an RIC man, but he's a decent man, he's an Irish man, he'll do his duty. If we can get him on side, we, we will be kind of uh, lucky to have him. And I suppose Assistant Commissioner Patrick Walsh is a perfect example of that, a career RIC man. But he was the police advisor to Michael Staines and Ono Duffy for the next 10 years after foundation. And both of them said that the civic guards would not have really survived without the, the influence of Patrick Walsh. I'm delighted to say we have family members of Patrick Walsh here tonight and Michael Staines as well. So it gives us a direct link with those people from 100 years ago. And I think the men that gathered in the room that night knew that having normal civil policing after years of conflict and the black and tans and auxiliaries would be vital in establishing the new free state and making it stable again. And in September 1922, having completed their training, the Civic Guard recruits were sent to guard the barracks all over Ireland. The civil war was still going on and the free state was a very difficult and dangerous place for the new unarmed force to police. But within a very short time, and Garda Shikana have been accepted in the communities they policed. And as it's been referred to by the Commissioner and the Minister, that created a unique relationship with the people of Ireland that remains today and is the envy of other police services around the world. And for me, I suppose, as a, as a historian too, to find out that we were actually founded by such an iconic figure as Michael Collins is something that we can be justifi justifiably proud of, particularly during our centenary year. Thank you.
Thank you, John, uh, for setting the scene there. So um, we're moving on now, and I'm going to invite uh, Miss Anne Casson to the stage. Anne knows, needs no introduction to, to us, uh, an accomplished broadcaster, and we'd like to claim a close connection with Anne because she uh, presented Crime Call for many years, I think maybe up to six years. So Anne, if you wouldn't mind, please, coming on to the stage, and Anne will be our moderator for the next part of the uh, evening. Thanks, Anne. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, Minister, Garda Commissioner, Assistant Commissioners, John, thank you, uh, the Garda Band for uh, music earlier on. I've always been very fond of the Garda Band. Um, I'm absolutely delighted and honoured to be here, like uh, speakers before me, to be in the actual physical location of where such significant events took place is indeed an honour. Um, I am also... Uh, Delighted that we have uh, descendants, as has been acknowledged already, of two and three of the people who attended the meeting, uh, Michael Staines, who is the grandson of the First Guard, the Commissioner Michael Staines, Nora Owen, who is the grandniece of uh, Michael Collins and a former Minister for Justice herself, and Anya Broy, who is the daughter of Ned Broy, who was the third Guard, the Commissioner from 1938 to 19, 1933 to 1938. You're very welcome. So in the presence of so many experts, I am not going to set myself up as an expert for history, but I have to say I must um, admit that I have been reading quite a lot on the subject matter over the last while, which brings me neatly to introduce our main speaker of the night. He is an author, a former teacher, uh, a historian, um, a man with a passionate expertise about the Gardaí, and if you look at him, a natty style in ties. <laughs> so please, would you put your hands together for Dr. Liam McNiff. Uh, seeing that John took one of my two jokes, I'd have to make up another one. And the one is that you can say, I wear my art on my sleeve. That's good by my standards. Welcome to everyone. I'll talk for about a half hour, okay? And what I'm really doing is looking at what the free state, new free state, their guards were like for the first 30 years, because they didn't change very much. I'll be taken up from where John, who gave us such great detail about the um, actual meeting here. And it is against the background of the War of Independence and the Civil War. It's impossible for us to realise what exactly they were up against. The country had split. Speaking of the Dáil, the Dáil vote had just taken place, and hopefully it's a tight one, uh, and uh, it actually split almost evenly, which was terrible, because it meant the country was split. And then the IRA, they're the people who fought in the War of Independence against England, that split in March. And then the Civil War started in June. So it was against that background that the guards are the, uh, were set up. The RIC were being disbanded. And in fact, there was no policing in the normal sense in Ireland from about January 1919 to the guards. The Civic Guard was sent out about August, September 1922. So that was the background. Uh, John pointed out the meeting, and what did the meeting decide? It decided who would join the guards. And I mean, it 
it's incredibly ironic by today's standards. Imagine advertising to join the guards, and the first thing is IRA. Like it, it, it's, you know, you ask a terrorist organisation, but at that time, the IRA had fought to free Ireland from England, and they were being, if you like, rewarded. So what happened was people, they, whoever, whoever was the IRA commandant in the local area, would tell his local people to apply to join the guards. And I interviewed in the early 1990s, I did my PhD actually on the early years of the guards, and I interviewed a John, a Tom Boland, who had been in the IRA in Clare. And he then was told, and this is what he told by his local uh, volunteer commander, to apply to join the guards. I applied to join at Ennis Courthouse in early March 1922. I was measured and directed to get a medical cert from Surgeon McCart. McClancy. I did an exam at the Christian Brothers School, interestingly, on St. Patrick's Day, and about nine others did it on the same day. And a week later, I received confirmation by post that I was to report the next day at the RDS for training. Uh, and that was it. He probably never, I'm not being funny, had been in Dublin before. Uh, and when they, they were at the RDS, and I mean, uh, that was, so the first group were the IRA, or Republican police, who were volunteers who had IRA who were acting as policemen when there was no normal policing going on. The next group were uh, men dismissed or resigned from the RIC. People forget the RIC were Irishmen. Over 80% of them were Catholic and they actually were very well respected except during the land war and the war of independence when they were on the wrong side, if you like. And the, the new force needed RIC men. How would you set up a police force from scratch without RIC men? And during the War of Independence, when the auxiliaries and the Black and Tans arrived, decent RIC men were disgusted, and they resigned from the force. Others were dismissed because they were regarded as too nationalistic, too much for Ireland, and they were dismissed, and hundreds left, apart from hundreds being killed, as John pointed out. So they were uh, being accepted in, and uh, also, uh, they also were civilian population. Now, the next group was the group whose presence caused trouble. This were the idea of disbanded RIC members. N numerous members waited until the RIC was disbanded, got their pensions and so on. Now, some of those had been secretly giving information to Collins to help in the War of Independence. But rank and file and ordinary people didn't know this. As Commissioner Harris said there earlier, you don't go around giving details about the security work of the force. So that was happening and people weren't being told. So Collins knew they were okay, but the others didn't. And the RIC men coming in were being given reward, naturally enough, for their rank with regard to pension, length of service, and so on. Now, uh, the people who were told uh, to join, as I told you about, uh, it was local RI, IRA men and so on, and they then arrived at the RDS. And here's an account of one uh, arriving at the RDS. A William Mitchell of County Sligo arrived up at the RDS. We were given a registration number and marched to the canteen where we were advised to purchase a large enamel plate, knife, fork, spoon and mug. We were then taken to the mess room where we were given two cups of tea from a galvanised bucket and two slices of bread and butter. None of your flora there. Then we were marched to a large store where we were given free a large bag or mattress cover, four blankets, four sheets, one pillow with a pillowcase and here's your bed three nine by one inch thick boards that were six foot long as well as two trestles. You know that kind of, you made your own. We were then led to the stalls where we packed straw into a bag for bedding. 
So any of you connected with Temple Moor can read that to the recruits when they arrive and just, it'll probably set the scene and test just exactly what you're dealing with. But that was the reality. And then, uh, John ruined one of my jokes. It was about, where do you pick a guard or a horse? Well, the RDS obviously picked the horses. And uh, they had to go. But it was young fellas who had never been under any discipline. And when they were being trained there, they had to be back at 10 o'clock at night and they'd get off the train. I don't know how near the train went to the RDS, but it slowed down and they'd jump off to be back in time for 10 o'clock. They also were slovenly, hands in pockets, talking to girls, hopping out for a jar when they're supposed to be training, uh, and all of this. But that seems very funny in ways, but here was an explosive situation. What you had got was, I did the statistics on it, and you had over 90% of the new recruits had been in the IRA. Now, they were used to taking orders from their IRA commandant, whoever was in charge of their area, and it was a matter of life and death, and they looked up to him. Now what happened? They're in a situation where their commandant is an ordinary guard, if you like, and they have to take orders from the RIC officers, who was their enemy, so they're not impressed. Now, Collins knew the bona fide of these people, but the ordinary rank and file didn't, and that's where the trouble happened. Uh, there's a photograph I talked to lots of guards who, who joined in the late 40s and so on and they talked about it was physical education my god where they ground into it, it was non-stop physical education uh, and I was in a boys band in the early 60s and I couldn't play music but I marched and it was a local sergeant who taught us community policing and it was all military policing but uh, what you had got was they moved down to Kildare and Newbridge now, one thing to remember. Sorry. Is that the RIC, while it was an armed force, we have this idea of they going around armed the whole time. They weren't. They were only armed in times of trouble, like the land war and the war of independence. The rest of the time, one or two of them might be armed, but not all of them. But when the Civic Guard was being set up, it was going to be an armed force. And I mean really armed, in the sense that at the beginning they were put, put on armed protection duty. In other words, the, minister, the government offices in Dublin, the banks and so on, had Guard protection. There was a group of them sent out to Kildare to mine part of the railway line where the anti-treaty IRA were attacking. And these fellas, having been in the IRA, had no intention of being shot at, they went in active pursuit. So they were acting like a military, because they were armed and so on. Uh, and they were semi-military, not civilian in that sense. Now, in, of the uh, 1,300 recruits in Kildare, 84 of them had been in uh, the RIC. Now, half of those uh, had included those who had been disbanded and dismissed for patriotic reasons, which was fair enough. People knew that. But it was the other group whom I referred to, those who had been disbanded, uh, who, sorry, who had resigned or dismissed, I should have said, for patriotic reasons. That was okay. Everyone knew about them. But the others, people felt, oh, they were in the RIC. Now they're telling us what to do. And they stayed on until they got the pension at the end. Now, Collins was happy with those, but he had enough on his plate, I would imagine, without going around and telling. Staines, and Staines comes out as a very honourable man. He had been, his father, I think, was in the RIC. Uh, he had been in the GPO. He was a TD. He was in the War of Independence. Very honourable. But I mean, how do you set up a police force without policemen? So he used the RIC and gave, they all got promotion. But that didn't go down too well. And then what happened was, 
uh, he continued to, uh, in Kildare, he appointed on the 15th, was it, yeah? The 15th of May, he appointed five RIC to commissioned ranks, and all hell broke loose. A men's committee had been formed among the rank and file, and they issued an ultimatum. Just remind the commissioner, that was May in 22, it's 100 years ago. <laughs> okay, uh, but anyway, they, they said they didn't mind the RIC ex-members being ordinary rank and file, but not commissioned ranks. They wouldn't take rule orders from them. So uh, they actually uh, gave an ultimatum. Now, they may put out clearly, remember the country is drifting to civil war. So they very clearly pointed out, look, we're not against the government, we're not against the treaty, but we don't want RIC men in commissioned positions. Staines called a parade, a general parade on the Barrack Square and asked those loyal, like it must have been incredibly dramatic, you could make a film out of it, uh, asked them loyal to come to st stand on his side, about a dozen out of eight or nine hundred. So he very diplomatically withdrew to quarters and slipped out with his loyal uh, people that night to government and told them, look, there's a mutiny on hand. He offered his resignation, but they said, look, hold on. Now, the next day, a bloodbath could have happened. Uh, luckily, it wasn't. Word got to government that all the guns, remember the RIC had handed over their Webley revolvers and all their rifles and ammunition to the new Civic Guard. And all of that was in Kildare. And word got to the government that they were going to hand, fall into the hands of the anti-treaty. Does that make sense? It was going to fall into their hands. So they sent down the Free State Army. So if the Free State Army, arriving down in Lancia trucks, outside the barracks, facing the 900 guards who are armed and saying, we want your stuff handed over. And the irony, they're on the one side. Luckily, common sense prevailed. The TD, uh, Sean uh, Liddy, I think. Liddy, isn't it? Sean Liddy, yep, who was a TD, was a superintendent in the guard, and he uh, went out and talked sense and the army withdrew, thanks for the God, because, I mean, you can imagine that. Uh, now, Brennan, who was second in command to Staines, uh, was very popular with the men, but didn't fill in Staines how the feeling was. He took over running the, the uh, Kildare depot. Now, the government cut off pay, and Kildare continued to operate as a depot, in normal, as if things were normal training, for six weeks. Pay was cut off and family, you know the usual, the children at college, everything's no contact till they need money. So fellas rang or wrote home and got money and local, it's interesting, local uh, shopkeepers give credit, which gives you some idea of people wanting normality. They were prepared to give credit to these young fellas uh, because it was the new state and they were kind of saying this is a good idea having police. But they gave credit. The government opened up rival depots in Denmark Street. I think it's off Grafton Street, is it? Or? Yeah. yeah, off Grafton Street and so on. And you had this crazy situation where IRA could go up and either join one or the other. And a few hundred did to both of them. Talk about choice. Uh, and that went on for May and June. And this was all against a background, while I've been flippant about it, it was against a background of going to a civil war. It was just unbelievable. Now, on the 17th of June, a major event happened. The three there who'd be anti-treaty leaders, uh, Ernie O'Malley, Tom Barry, and Rory O'Connor, they had secretly agreed to rendezvous with a few of the leaders of the men in Kildare. 
They rendezvoused a few miles from uh, Kildare, came back with the password, entered the uh, depot, and cleared out the entire armory, everything that the RIC had handed over, and headed back to Dublin to the four courts. So what has happened? As the guards, as the government had worried, all the ammunition, uh, guns, everything, were now in the hands of the anti-treaty. So that fairly banged heads together. Uh, on the, uh, the Collins and Griffith, a week later, came up with, look, all money to be paid to the men due the six weeks, an inquiry to be set up, and they were disbanded, uh, but not, they, sorry, they were, uh, what's the word, they were suspended, but not disbanded. But in other words, in reality, it didn't make much difference. They still were paid. Now, uh, and that was accepted by the guards, and the mutiny was over. Now, this is where, four days later, the Civil War broke out. Collins, under pressure from England, who said they wouldn't withdraw any more of the British soldiers from Ireland, the English soldiers, he fired on the four courts and the war of, Indi of the Civil War had begun. So the Garda problem was just solved right before it. Uh, and uh, John talked there earlier about the Gresham. There was a photograph he had given me about it. Now, the inquiry... God be with the days, you could just set up an inquiry, started work in a day or two, people would sit down for a few weeks, kill themselves working, you had no resort to, you know, whether you were supposed to appear or not, you just did. Now, obviously, the anti-treaty side didn't. There was no court cases, no nothing done in four weeks. Things would be great in some ways, but I suppose not. But it met, and it had to find out why was there a mutiny? Any disciplinary action necessary and any idea about the future of the force. And they met and did all of that in four weeks. Uh, and there were two um, senior civil servants, Kevin O'Shale, sorry, O'Shiel and Michael McAuliffe. And they drew up the report in four weeks and was on the government tables and they accepted it. Like, talk about, no more than the three weeks that John was talking about setting up a force. I know there were simpler times, simple life. Uh, but what did it say? It said, first of all, that the majority of the Civic Guard was loyal to the government, as we felt, and that they were annoyed at the promotion of the uh, RIC members. But a small minority, politically motivated anti-treaty, had used this general grievance and genuine grievance to get disrupt the formation of the force and get the arms, and they managed in doing both of them. And that's what they had, they had intended. And what was the proof? Any good solicitor will tell you, and the guards will tell you, if you haven't proof, you have no case. Um, Fourteen men were on the committee. Five of them, including the president of the men's committee, hightailed it to the four courts. They had changed their mind and were against the treaty and felt very strongly the treaty was wrong and now they're going on the anti-treaty side. There were RIC men and RIC man was the uh, secretary to the men's committee. And I mean, they'd been against the RIC. People who weren't RIC were hopped, thrown out of the Kildare during the mutiny. So there were a whole lot of things that wasn't as clear. But the majority of the guards had just the annoyance of the RIC. But here is what's more important. The recommendations. The recommendation, the vast majority of the force was to be unarmed. Now, can you imagine making that decision? And this is in August. The Civil War started in June. It was to carry on. It was raging through Dublin. You saw the Gresham destroyed and so on. It was raging through Dublin. 
And then it went out to Munster in particular and then kind of became like a guerrilla warfare in ways and went on until the following May. And the authorities decided the guards are going to be unarmed. It was an incredibly courageous, and I mean, I have uh, uh, documentation that, you know, I saw where the guards went out and they were welcomed by the local people and they were given a place to stay because they had none and all of this. And then what happens? The local anti-treaty IRA arrive. Uh, don't shoot the guards, fortunately, because they weren't armed, but take their bicycles, take their coats and burn anything else they have. Uh, and all recommendations were accepted by the government and Griffith died from overwork and Collins was killed about 10 days later. So, I mean, things were just done in time. The conclusion, John pointed out about the meeting here in the Gresham, the seminal meeting, which was incredibly important. They had to deal with the nuts and bolts of setting up a police force. In the summer, after the mutiny and the mistakes, the other meeting, the inquiry, set out a kind of a philosophy of the force. They got a little bit more time to think. And they set out that it would be civilian, not military. And in fact, in the late 40s, there was uh, some work done out and they pointed out that some parts of the country guards are doing 40% administrative, sorry, civilian duties, not policing. And I mean, that was a problem for ages. And then fortunately, nowadays, I'm not in the force, obviously, I didn't measure up, I know. But uh, they, they um, what do you call it? They were doing 40% of their work was actually, uh, you know, civilian work, not policing at all. But you now have civilians who were able to do that. Uh, they were unarmed, which was major. And, um, but incredibly brave during the Civil War. Now, Michael Staines, I know we've heard this, and again, it's crucial. What he said was incredibly prescient. I mean, you talk about sound bites, and he didn't strike me as somebody he was in for, you know, it looks good. But what he said was incredible, because it's the kind of thing I was in teaching for years, and you get a class on your side not by instilling fear, by getting respect and showing respect, and being good at it. Uh, and... the not by force of arms or numbers, but on their moral authority as servants of the people. And I think they've retained that. And as the commissioner pointed out, not perfectly. I mean, there'd be something wrong with a major organization over 100 years if you hadn't some dark spots. But they have overall. And the, as was referred to earlier, 89 Guardi have lost their lives in the line of duty in the 100 years. And if any, I presume all of you have been, but I hadn't been in years in the... Memorial Garden in Dublin Castle. And like, apart from being a beautiful oasis, it's very moving because when I saw the names, I recognised lots of them. And there at the bottom, I have Adrian Donoghue, who was actually a student in the school. Now, I didn't, not at the time I was there, but when I was back as principal, he was a student and when he was killed. So it, it becomes very real. And I'm sure lots of you here have a lot more closer connections. Uh, now, just for the next little while, I'll talk about the force from 1920s to 1950s, because they didn't change very much. And if you want controversy, Owen O'Duffy, that's an understatement. I mean, unbelievably. Sorry, just a second. I won't ask, is there anyone here from Monaghan? But um, he was a megalomaniac. Mag on power, absolutely, okay. He was autocratic, it was his way or no way, which doesn't fully work. Vain, to put it mildly, he'd make me look modest. He was an alcoholic, but he was all the talk about uh, being temperance and the people should be all pioneers. 
And he was a later a fascist and anti-democratic. But, and I'm very strong on this, he was a brilliant organiser. Uh, he was great, he had great energy, incredible energy. He inspired his men. Uh, he was idealistic and he had a vision for the new force. In my eyes, he was the right man in the right place for the right job at the right time. Now, I met uh, Mick Hegarty, who had joined the force in 1923 and interviewed him, and he pointed out that he had met O'Duffy once or twice. He said he could make you feel, he did, he says, he was far, you felt he was on your side. He demanded very high standards, but he felt he was on your side. Now, he drove the government nuts, and they were trying to, in 1925-26, Cumming and Gale wanted to sack him. But he did a great job in the 10 years, despite all the contradictions. Uh, he helped shape the force, and the force that was set up in 1922, Ireland didn't change. I was born in 57. I saw the changes in the 60s. The world and Ireland changed dramatically in the 60s. It didn't change for 40 years, and what's more, the force didn't change, because they all grew old together, gracefully, I hope, but they all grew old together, because they all had joined at a young age. So a lot that happened in the 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s was kind of the same. Now, I know in the cities and that policing changed, but the countryside remained a lot the same. And it was civilian, not military, uh, accepted by all sides. Like when Dev won the election in 32, he didn't sack O'Duffy immediately. It was a year later after he won the next election. But the guards, and I asked some guards who were from the 20s, whom I interviewed in the 1990s, and they said, look, we were guards, we were policemen. And I mean, one fellow to be my um, brother's father-in-law. And good, strong blue shirt. You know, and I asked, what happened in 32? Ah, oh, he says, we were policemen first. And if it came from him, it was genuine. Uh, acceptable on all sides, and they were servants of the people. And I think that's what is major. Uh, and the rural, the Ireland they reflected was the GAA sport, uh, Irish language and Catholic. And I just look briefly at the social type of it. I put 10,135 uh, guards uh, details, I didn't know the names, just the numbers, uh, into, oh, and by the way, when I'm here, I'd like to pay a special word of thanks to retired inspector John Duffy, who was curator of the Garden Museum when I was doing the work for my book and doctors 30 years ago and was incredibly helpful. And I got access uh, without breaking any confidentiality just to numbers and so on. But I put 10,135 guards on computer who joined between 1922 and 52, most of them in the early 20s, and found out what counties they came from. And the darker the county, the more guards. Okay? I mean, talk about, you know, you talk about being inclusive. You'd have been, in, you'd have been accused, uh, Commissioner, now of neglecting Eastern uh, uh, Ireland. But as you'd expect, the Northeast had very few. But Louth is there, I'm not positive, but I wondered was it that Frank Aiken was very anti-treaty, and he was big in the IRA there, I'm not sure, and that's why. But the very East. Now, if you go to the in-between, if you draw a line from Donegal down to, Kerry, down to Cork, and go East of that, there's only three to six percent. So in each county there, they only produced three to six percent of the guards. Look then as you go more Midwest, you take Donegal, Leitrim, Sligo, Roscommon, three to six percent. The same down at Limerick, Clare um, and Tipperary. And then you go the hard West, okay? Mayo, Galway, Kerry and Cork. And I remember growing up and hearing dubs complaining, oh they're all culchies, the guards, and they were. 
Right? They were. I'm sure hands up any from Dublin. And just to rub in more salt into the wounds of the Dublin people, O'Duffy wanted farmer's son who were decent and reliable. I don't know what that says, but that's what happened. And even the DMP, the Dublin police, who eventually joined the guards, about a third or 40% of those resigned in the first few years of independence, and it was Colchis who replaced them. <laughs> uh, if you look there too, the counties that produced the most, Leitrim, my home county, produced the most guards proportionately to population. And that whole region too of Clare, Kerry, Roscommon, Longford, Sligo. The West, okay? And if you take Dublin, excluding Northern Ireland, Dublin produced the least, which of course wasn't good, you know, in the sense that if you don't have people from all areas. Uh, but the 1922 to the mid-30s conditions, I just thought I'd point out, I know there's a lot of guards in the room, I feel very safe, but uh, there was no such thing as overtime. You got time in lieu, and I interviewed guards, as a time in lieu me foot? You didn't get time in lieu, you often didn't get the full time repaid. Uh, and they lived in barracks. The single men lived in barracks. And there was a mature lady who looked after the food and all of that. But what's ironic is they lived in barracks that on Easter Sunday, 1920, the IRA had given a general order that you should burn all the RIC barracks in rural Ireland so that the RIC would be forced to retreat to the towns and help undermine British rule. So the IRA duly complied. What happened? The same fellas joined the guards two years later and were sent out to the barracks. <laughs> I introduced to Mick Hegarty, and in 1923, he went out to a barracks in Black Rock, I think it was, outside Dundalk, and there was a gaping hole in the roof that was there for 18 months. The boys had burned it earlier, you know? Uh, you had a 78-hour week, but now, be fair, you had eight hours sleep because you did barrack orderly duty, so you could sleep for eight hours. And uh, you also had one day off per month. And you had a month off per year, which was good, 30 days. And a lot of them went home to their family farm, you know, the family at home, did they save the hay, save the turf. And patrols of the imagination. None of you should recognise what that means. Um, John McGahern, who was from Balnamore and so on, had his barracks, the book captures it all. Patrols of the imagination, being honest, the guards in the rural area had an awful long stint of duty with very little to do. They, like, how could you do a crime in the countryside? People would know if you stole a bike. You couldn't appear with it. And they'd know who the usual suspects were. So they had an awful lot of, And they were, they were, the weather was bad, and the oil skins, they were always in the guard review about the oil skins of that not being good. So when it was pouring rain, especially in the West, the boys would get very uh, creative and they would write these glowing accounts of patrols of seeing dogs and horses and people and everything while never leaving the Garda station. <laughs> but it was all part of being the creative Ireland long before it was mentioned. Uh, and now what's brilliant is there's a, a record in the Garda Museum of a young guard, John Hartigan, living in Tipperary, who was 20, in 1928. And it's his personal diary for nine months. It's absolute gem. When you're reading it, you just feel you're in his head. And at the beginning, he said, uh, what was it? On duty, called a friend's house, had a game of cards, called to another house, conversed at length, on return, patrolled the village. <laughs> And then, for all the senior ranks in the guards, I love this next one. Just look at it. 
He was returning from patrol and he noticed the chief super was on an inspection. So he delayed his return. Now being fair, it was total consideration on his part not to be overtaxing the chief super who would likely ask him police duty questions and everything. And he also got time to walk with his girlfriend. You see, we're on for hours. And he said special friend and after a lot of months I realised it was his girlfriend. But wait for it. He was returning home at 2.30 in the middle of the, in the morning from his parents' house and he noticed a suspicious car. So he followed it up, did a whole lot of questioning, checking out, I don't know who he rose from their beds and so on, and at 6.30 discovered it was an innocent explanation and returned, went to bed. So in my eyes, John Hartigan the lad and John Hartigan the guard, the one person. As the saying kills where I live once a guard, always a guard. But to me, that's crucial because it's, you know, I don't know what they're called, Compol now or something, or community policing, but he was doing it and they were all doing it. And they didn't go around to, oh, I am doing community policing. You know, we've got so much, we've got so much a more uh, complex society. They were just doing it because life was simple. And sport. Uh, for 10 years, phenomenal achievements in sport. But remember, most of the force was under 29 years of age because they'd all joined young. So what did they achieve? In athletics, 54 provincial titles, uh, 40, what is it? 44 Irish and six British. And that's guards won this. I mean, O'Duffy was mad on sport. Now, he was kind of mad anyway, but he was fanatical about everything. And he was mad on them. Uh, do you remember there were, any of you older might remember the ball alleys on the edge of RIC barracks. The boys played handball. All of that kind of idea. Sport, it was a way of getting into the community. And uh, the GAA, look at this, they won two senior Dublin titles as well as others. Might need to come back. But uh, they also, in hurling, they won five. Now, there's one thing I'm not sure about. Uh, in 1927, Dublin won the All-Ireland, and it's supposed to be that it was a Garda team. Sometimes a club represented the county. I'm not positive. Someone might enlighten me on that. And they also, in handball, um, won national senior. Now, boxing, the picture there on the right is Dick Hearns, whom I interviewed in the early 90s, an absolute gentleman. He was a boxer in the, gar in the army and was asked to come into the guards, and he boxed, I think, till about 1938. He then was a drill and PE instructor. And like he told me, you talk about semi-professional, he told me when he was there, he was doing four-hour normal guard duty, and then the rest of the time, training and preparing. And look at the results. Now, the, the next slide I'll show you is incredible. In one year, in 1932 alone, the guards won the following. One year. Okay? 13 international team contests, two European police titles, and 25 national contests. That's in one year. I could crack a terrible joke and say they were boxing above their weight, but I won't. Uh, but that's the reality. Now, I'm nearly finished. Uh, Catholic force, 99% of the guards were Catholic. Now that wasn't inclusive because only 93% of the population was Catholic. The other 7% would have been made up of Church of Ireland, Methodist, Presbyterian. But it was an overwhelmingly Catholic country, an overwhelmingly Catholic force. O'Duffy was mad Catholic, of course, and he led a pilgrimage of guards to Rome where they met the Pope who complimented them on being unarmed. And this was in Mussolini's fascist Italy. And think of this, 
The rank and file guards, everyone gave up two weeks of their four week uh, because it was overland. They gave up nine weeks pay to go. Can you just imagine? Talk about, you know, dedication to religion. Uh, nine weeks pay. O'Duffy led them again to uh, Lourdes in 1930. Now, O'Duffy, this was big on the pioneers. You know, the pioneer, you have to explain that now. Pioneer total absence association where you didn't drink. And I interviewed, it was actually Gregory Allen, who did an awful lot of work, but I interviewed, I think it was Gregory, he'll kill me even though he's dead. He, you know, for, if I'm inaccurate, I think it was Gregory who told me, when the pioneers, in passing out, there'd be a big photograph of the pioneers for the Garda review. But there might only be 40 pioneers, but they swell the back numbers with fellas who weren't pioneers. Uh, and the picture, and it would say, at pioneer graduation, which technically wasn't wrong. Uh, but... I interviewed Mary Shaw, a lovely lady who was married to John Shaw, who was a sergeant. He, they were Church of Ireland. She assured me there was no uh, discrimination, but it was a totally Catholic country. Uh, I won't bore you too much, because I'm probably going over time, but Irish language, there was massive effort made to learn the Irish language, because it was being taught in schools. And O'Duffy believed the force would become uh, bilingual. And I interviewed, I think it was a chief super, was he Carol in, in Drogheda in his 90s. And he remembered cycling from Navan to Drogheda for two winters every Tuesday evening to learn Irish for promotion. Now, you couldn't have it as an, an entrance, part of the entrance exam because people hadn't got Irish, although you got extra marks if you had Irish. But what did they all learn? When you killed yourself learning Irish, you were banished to the Gaeltacht. And there were very few social services and people didn't want to, so they started hiding their ability to have Irish if you were rank and file. And then there was a lovely line, uh, sorry, where um, the, there in the 1930s, uh, Fianna Fáil Common came up and wrote a letter to the guards that they were fed up, they were getting, what were the words? Uh, well, a dumping ground for the most inefficient kind of guards. Uh, that was their belief, and that didn't go down well, obviously. Now, it's interesting, Commissioner Canaan, who took over in 38 and died in office in 52, said, and he summed it up, the real problem is that people don't want to use Irish. What actually happened was the guards killed themselves learning Irish. They bought lingophone records, voluntary, and the guy he interviewed said, voluntary me foot. He said, if you didn't buy it, you're as well not turn up in the station. And they were still there in the 50s, I think. People told me going into stations and finding them. But the guards killed themselves learning the Irish language. There was a, an, an hour in the morning with the sergeant there uh, learning Irish every day. Could be reintroduced. Uh, but <laughs> uh, but it, 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 the, people, the guards got ahead of the people. And the people weren't learning it. And this, I could, have, and I could have had a blank sheet here because women were not in the guards till 1959. But like most things, in fact all things, they're there and without them it'd be a lot worse. So what happened? In 1920s, if you wanted to marry, you had to get permission from the commissioner. Your sergeant wrote a confidential report on the suitability of your future bride. Uh, oh my God, talk about keeping on the side. Uh, to the commissioner. But the reality was terrible. A guard arrived young, athletic, you know, so on, and fell in love with a local girl. And the first thing that happened when they got married was he was moved, and he had to be moved 50 miles from her place. Now, it changed to 30 and so on, and then just the county. But in an Ireland where you hadn't transport, people hadn't cars, you might as well have been sent to England. 
another country. And people, you would know communications, the letter, and their whole family was disrupted. A lot of guards, their wives moved with them and had to move. In fact, that Mrs. Shaw told me her first husband had six children. His wife died. He married her and they had 12. And she said, any time we moved, the big worry was get a real old rundown house with lots of rooms. That was the reality. But the McGahern uh, had the part where, in his barracks, uh, where he talked about uh, his father coming from Coot Hall in Roscommon to Ballinamore, my hometown, cycling on the one day a month to see his wife, who was a primary teacher. Now, our good friend O'Duffy, just to uh, rehabilitate him in people's eyes, he wasn't exactly a feminist. When he heard uh, about the, we say, national teachers in particular, I think those 57 guards married to national teachers, uh, at that case, that, and they were living apart from where the guard was on duty, he said he should take her, uh, forgo her salary, and bring her to her home where she should, where she belongs. I thought I'd finish on that contentious note. Thank you very much. That was absolutely wonderful uh, and really very entertainingly uh, communicated to us. We're going to have a little bit of housekeeping now while we strike this podium and I might invite our panellists to come up and take a seat. Uh, Commissioner Harris is going to join us as will uh, Nora Owen, former Minister for Justice and grandniece of Michael Collins. Liam is going to come back up on stage. Have a drink there, Liam. You spoke a lot already. We're also joined by former Garda Commissioner Noreen O'Sullivan, who is going to uh, talk to us later on, and uh, also Michael Staines, Senior Counsel and Solicitor, who is the grandson of the First Commissioner of Ungarda, Siakana, Michael Staines. And I've actually forgotten my water, so just give me a second. Has everybody got the water there? See, do you know what? Let's give a round of applause to yourself, Liam. It was fantastic. You carried that very lightly, and I know there's a lot of uh, study and many years of research uh, went into your book. So we're going to get on with the um, panel discussion. And I think given the historic nature of our event and the fact that we are in the very same location where the uh, committee met to set up or at least make the decision to set up a, a police force, we might open proceedings. If I could ask um, Nora Owen, who is the grandniece of Michael Collins, um, whose idea it was at the time and who also attended the meeting, but as we understand, didn't really contribute. Given the turbulence of the time, on the cusp of civil war, the withdrawal of the British from Ireland and the disbandment of the RIC, um, 
What is your sense as a family member of the Times and his decision to drive that? Good evening, Anne, and thank you very much indeed. And I should point out that my brother is here as well. I, there are plenty of grandnieces and nephews all over the country. I, I'm not the, the main one, but I'm very honoured to be here this evening. Um, and, and listening to the anecdotes and listening to Liam and listening to the Commissioner and the Minister, um, I'm reminded, you know, the way something personally stays in your head. When I was Minister for Justice, I went over to Downing Street uh, in 1996 and I was standing outside the door of number 10 and there's a very iconic picture of Michael Collins striding in the, in the door because Lloyd George wouldn't meet them at the front door of, of Downing Street. He didn't want photos to appear so they went in on their own and he met them inside and both Dick Spring and John Bruton just whispered to me, this must be a special occasion for you because of course I was the first member of our family to walk in that door since Michael Collins had walked in. So it was, it was a very emotional moment as I thought about it that I had the honour to, to follow in his footsteps that closely. But I think when, when we were growing up as a family, we did not talk about Collins. And um, many people in this room will have relatives who served, uh, who fought in the War of Independence and were both pro and anti the treaty. And they also will tell you that it wasn't something talked about as they were growing up in their family because there was a lot of painful memories. And Michael Collins, when you consider how young he was when all this was going on, he was very devoted to his family. And our grandfather, Johnny or Sean Collins, um, lived down in, in, in West Cork. And um, what we did hear from my mother was what happened when her own mother, her own mother was dying, my grandmother was dying in February of 1921 and um, the Black and Tans arrived to burn the house because it was a Collins house. And um, the young housekeeper came out and said to them, have some humanity, there are eight children in here and there's a woman dying upstairs. And uh, the man in charge, if you call it humanity, said, well, we won't burn it down today, but we'll be back when she dies. And that's precisely what happened. So if you think about uh, people grew up with that kind of thing happening to them all across Ireland, the pain of that sometimes doesn't go away. And our mother used to say to us when she eventually talked, when we were all in our late teens and early 20s before she opened up, and she remembers that day when the house was being burnt, the neighbours had been brought around, made to put straw and, and kindling and all sorts of things around the house to make it burn. And she, she, her memory as a 10-year-old was she tried to run back in to get her school bag because she was terrified that she wouldn't have her school bag for school the next day. And that was her memory of that day. And then the family were all split up and sent around. So Collins's role uh, in what he was doing had an effect on all his family. And, and he came down when the house was burnt and stood outside it and said, look what I've done. 
this is my fault, more or less saying this is my fault. So so there was a silence over Collins for a long time. I um, guess you'd call it a form of post-traumatic stress, really, that, yes. that the family didn't speak about. It. Yes, and, and people here will know that themselves. So so really it was, it was um, when I read now about Collins and see, I mean, think about what he did at the early age he was in and listening to the commissioner and listening to the minister. You know, there's all sorts of things that, even in, the, in his 20s, he saw what Ireland could be. And, and that's where I think we should have the pride in him. He saw what we could do in agriculture, in, in, in developing industries. Uh, and then his idea then to call these people together. I mean, look at the letter. Your name has been given. I mean, if you tried to do that now, there'd be ructions um, <laughs> because you can't, you, you know, there'd be all sorts of inquiries as to how did that person's name get on a list and how did that person's name get on a list? But it was perfectly all right. He said, your name has been given to us. Would you like to come along to a meeting where we're going to set up the police force? I mean, it is quite extraordinary. What, but they had to do it. They were doing it from... Nothing. And he did uh, go to Kildare during the, the, yes. the tension-filled days of the mutiny. Um, and he tried to interview and he did promise an inquiry. And he also had a, a very significant working relationship with your uh, Grandfather Michael Staines, Michael Staines, yes, yeah. and in terms of your family, what's been passed down in, the, in terms of the law, and of course that extraordinary relationship that he would have had with Michael Collins. Yes, indeed. I think it might be interesting just to speak about my grandfather for a couple of minutes. He, he was born in Mayo in, in 1885, and he was the son of an RIC man. Uh, they came to Dublin, and uh, quite soon he got involved with, with the Gaelic League, and he was eventually joined uh, the Volunteers and was quickly made Quartermaster master General of the Volunteers, which I think indicates the type of man that he was. He was obviously somebody that could be sent out to do things. He was Quartermaster General then in 1916 in the GPO, and then he became Taoiseach of Frongoch camp, where in fact he met Collins, because Collins was, was there in 1916 as a very young person. My grandfather would have been his uh, Taoiseach, his, his leader in, in, in Frongoch. And then obviously a very strong relationship developed between them, because uh, thereafter you can see that Collins is asking him to do many things on behalf of Collins, on behalf of, 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 of what was happening at the time. So he was involved at the, the Belfast boycott, he was involved in the Republican police and so on and so forth. And, and in fact, the New Iron Insurance Company, and in fact, I think then he, Collins probably saw him as a man who could probably could be sent out to do things. And I, I think that's what happened. And he was asked to do this on that particular day. And he was a TD at the time, Michael, wasn't yes, he? Yes, was he was a TD at the time, I think in 1918, and, uh, for initially in 1918. And then obviously he was there in the first stall and he was a TD. And that was unusual, at, 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 of course. And as, as a result of the inquiry, I think the decision was made that politicians should never be involved with the police, at least as members of the police, of the Garda. Nonetheless, the, the structures on which Angarda Siakona were formed basically uh, took as a, a template, so to speak, the old RIC, and they had to do it because the pressure to get a police force established was so pressing. Yeah, yeah well, I think the, the one thing, and I think it's been uh, said very brilliantly by the two previous speakers, is the time. I mean, it's unbelievable to think that in February they were setting up this police force in, in a situation where we were very close to a civil war. We had just finished a, a war of independence where, in fact, some of the recruits who were going to be down in Kildare were going to be anti-treaty people. Uh, it, there was no, no Gardaí, no police in the state at the time, and they had to set up a Garda force. And it's extraordinary 
Uh, one of the questions is, would they be happy with what they see today? Well, from where they started off from, they would be absolutely delighted to see the force that we have today, in fact. And it's his vision, really, that has been enunciated, that has been quoted uh, so so far this evening, that's uh, mentioned in the, the booklet here, yeah. that the moral authority of the force derives from the relationship with the people and that it not be armed. Yeah, I, I just actually think that's the most magnificent quote. And I mean, if you ask somebody today to go off and, and come back with a quote, if, if that hadn't been already there, if they came back with that quote, you'd be delighted with it because that's exactly what the Garda Siakana should be and are and will be, will be uh, looked at vis-a-vis -vis that quote. Mm. So I think it's, it's probably one of the best things he ever did was coming out with that quote. And his term as a Garda Commissioner was relatively short. Yes. Um, in your own family, in terms of the law coming down, what did you pick up or was it a little bit like Nora's experience insofar as there was trauma that wasn't referred to? Yeah, it's ab absolutely amazing. It's exactly like what Nora spoke about because um, the, the only person who ever I could ever get to speak about all of that was my grandmother, who was an incredible woman in, in her own way. And she told me some three or four interesting stories about what had happened. But none of the sons or daughters uh, at least until the very end, ever discussed what my grandfather had done. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that I find amazing is that particular uh, travel down to Kildare on that particular day where he's going into the, 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 the depot mm -hmm. and he's looking at 900 people, many of whom are armed, any of whom could take a pot shot at him. And he's kind of saying, Would you, who's going to stand with me? I, I often wondered what it was like, because he was just married at that time, did he tell his wife, I'm going down to Kildare and you mightn't see me again, or, or what? It, it must have been extraordinary. And yet, none of that's come back uh, to us from, from many of the children. And in fact, my, my last uncle, who died recently, a couple of years ago, I, I brought him out for lunch to try to see if there was anything else. And he just said they never talked about it at home. It's a little bit, it's a pity really, isn't it? A terrible pity, yeah. And when you think of his experience, when he calls out the parade, he asks for those members of the force who are loyal to him to stand with him, and so many don't. don't. Yes. That was a very brave decision of his to step away, I suppose, a bit of self-preservation yeah, as well, yeah. but it could have been, it was a highly charged it was, situation. It was hugely charged. I, I often wonder, as somebody said, you could make a film about that very moment, just as to how everybody reacted at the time. And what's your own sense, Nora, of the vision of the men of this time in uh, establishing a police force and then arising out of the, um, the inquiry notes that uh, it not be armed and how that has continued to do? Yeah, well, I think, I think that's probably one of the most important decisions. I mean, it was armed right at the very beginning, but then after the mutiny, it wasn't. I mean, that's most important. We know there are some members of the guards that carry arms now, and that's as it should be, but the general um, members do not carry arms. And it's when you, when you realize how important a guard the force is to the community and indeed I saw them in action I did a lot of election work abroad and I saw some of the guards helping with election monitoring and that and saw them in their shorts playing football with the local kids in Namibia or in South Africa or somewhere and you realize that they were accepted because they weren't armed to the teeth with things hanging off their belts and 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 all that sort of thing so that was a very important decision and you know, if you think about 
those 25 people, of course there had to be some people who were trained. Mm. Uh, but I could see how it would annoy people that the RIC uh, fellows were getting all the positions. I mean, people were getting promoted within sort of two days of kind of arriving. You're going to be a chief and you're going to be an inspector <laughs> and you're going to be a sergeant and all the rest. You, some of you might like that today if it could happen. But, <laughs> but, but you know, it's, it's, it was just extraordinary. The, the, the sheer... Um, tenacity that Collins had that he knew there had to be a police force and he went to Churchill and said don't want the RIC it's going to be a problem just disband them and let us start from scratch I mean they had a blank page and as uh, Liam alluded to earlier on uh, his timing I suppose was prescient because tragically he yes. was killed in uh, August of 1922 mm -hmm. uh, days after that of the establishment of the force um, and the inquiry. So I'm wondering about your position, I suppose I'm moving slightly here, mm -hmm. uh, as a minister for justice, that key tenet of the relationship with the community, how you have observed that in your years. Well, I mean, the community policing section was, wasn't, wasn't always there. You know, there were actually division made. And I know when I took over as minister, there was quite a lot of discussion about you know, the force, and again, there was a lot of things that were settled in Dublin. Interesting to see Liam's map there. And, and so there was, a, there was a proposal then to regionalise the force and to get the men and women of the guards, and there were still a lot of mostly men, get them out into the districts and out into the other counties around the country because they needed to be in places where they were able to get to know the community, get to know who the criminals were, get to know what was going on uh, behind the scenes. And, and that helped then to, to police the country properly. So, you know, what's been important about the setting up of the guards was that it started in one way and then gradually as needs became available and were wanted, it, it amended itself and adjusted itself. And I know the commissioner will know that, that it's never a done deal. You can never say, mm. well, that's it. We won't have to change anything from now on. We have it absolutely perfect. Because then something happens and you have to move on and you have to change. Uh, and then in 1959, somebody decided it was time women were in the police force. I mean, I remember, this is a, only an anecdote from the doll back in the 80s. Um, I was asking why there were no women in the army. And the reason I was given is because there were no women's toilets in the barracks. <laughs> and, and that was true. And, because, and, and when I went into the Dáil the first day I was there, and there were very few women's toilets near the Dáil either. You had to go up two, stairs, two flights of stairs and down a long corridor. So, you know, we had to adjust ourselves everywhere. So that's what I think is the, the miracle of setting up a police force with 25 people in this room or a room like it um, and saying, we're going to set up a police force. And they got on with it. And I mean, there was a mutiny, but it wasn't very long. No. They got on with it. I'll come to the question of women in the force later, but I'd like to just call uh, John uh, Reynolds there because just to maybe cover uh, a little bit about the conditions and um, that period from, let's say, the 20s to the 60s. We're talking about recruits who have been um, recruited as young men and they moved through the force. It's a period, I suppose, of as maybe consolidation. Um, the country itself isn't terribly dynamic. But what policing did the police do? Well, it's actually funny. Um, and when you look at the court cases... 
when the guards started arriving out into their districts as policemen, kind of really from September onwards. And just coming back to O'Duffy, O'Duffy was an incredible character because he had the inaugural sports day in Kildare before they left and went to their stations because O'Duffy knew sports was crucial. I think it was banding the force together after the mutiny, uh, giving them a, a discipline and a pride. And before they even left Kildare, they had their inaugural sports day and went out to the divisions. And in fact, uh, Henry Phelan, the first guard murder, was, was buying sporting equipment, you know, when he was killed just with that ethos. Mm. Uh, and, and when you look at the first court cases when they arrived out in September, October, it's actually remarkable because they had to enforce the British legislation. So the first cases they were on were, were evictions, which people might have thought, well, the RIC are gone, there'd be no more evictions. But the, like normal business resumed and, and they were the first court cases where animals wandering and, and everything that the RIC had done for the previous 100 years. And in a lot of ways, really, they were indistinguishable. I mean, the Civic Guard Register has RIC on it and it's crossed out. We didn't even have our own books in 22. But what <laughs> levels of crime were abroad, let's say, generally speaking, mm. I'm not tying you down, considering, let's say, the Civil War is over, there's a period of stability, we've mm. had the emergency, yeah. the North hasn't kicked off yet. Mm. So what aspect of policing is about crime prevention rather than crime detection in that period? Well, the, the prevention aspect, I suppose, is as we'd say today, it's the visibility of the... And it's one thing people will always say to the guard on the beat, it's still a, a precious thing to them, and the model might have changed from a guard on a bicycle, but it's the visibility, really, that people wanted. And I suppose for, for us as recruits in Templemore 85, learning about the Noxious Weeds Act, the Foreshore <laughs> Act, which were direct Victorian statutes that we still had to enforce. And I remember... Uh, when you were allocated your stations back then, anyone going to Dublin got a day on Dublin-specific policing. And then the country guards got different aspects of policing because it was unique to the country. I don't think I ever enforced the Noxious Weeds Act in Tala um, <laughs> in, the, in the 80s. <laughs> yeah, so it's, it's in a lot of ways, when you look back at what the RIC had done and what we did for the first 50 years, really, it, it hadn't really changed. And the, the discipline was ferocious, living in barracks. Uh, the sergeant would live there with their family. The men would live in dormitories, a bit like like uh, McGarren in Coot Hall. There, that model really didn't change. And I would I would kind of say with Liam too that I think the the guards really were kind of Ono Duffy's model for the for the next thirty years. Really, long after he stood down as commissioner, I think it's only really in the fifties when we, we're calling it the second generation because it's quite unique that every guard joined or every police officer joins at the one time and retires at the same time. That's not the norm. So we had in the 50s, and Charlie Hawhey was Minister for Justice at that stage, and he, he talked about the difficulty that we were going to have, that the, the authorised strength of the force was 6,000, and they were all going to retire in the period of four or five years. Yeah. So there was a massive recruitment drive uh, from the 50s onwards, which led to females being recruited and the move to Templemore, because they realised that the depot was no longer suitable for the numbers they would need to basically replace 6,000 people you know, over a few years. And I think at that stage you saw the change of female recruitment and then, you know, uh, the Conroy Commission and, and maybe more relaxation of the discipline and more freedom and things like leave being an entitlement rather than at the behest of the sergeant and things like that. And uh, Noreen O'Sullivan, uh, the first female Garda Commissioner from 2014 to 2017, um, a distinguished career. You 
entered, I was going to say entered the order, I'm sorry. <laughs> Joined the force. <laughs> Joined the force in 1981. Perhaps you might be described as, you know, that second generation. And um, on the, the policing side of it, um, crime has changed. Uh, Ireland is changing. The police force has to change to reflect changing aspects of criminality in terms of drugs and organised crime. What were you seeing? I think, Anne, if I go back to just picking up on the theme, you know, the the legacy of our forefathers. And I think, you know, not alone was it a courageous vision that Michael Staines had about being an unarmed police force, but I also think the title, Guardians of the Peace, on Garda Shikana. You know, people forget that that's a very seminal thing. And as I left on Garda Shikana and went out internationally, and I know that Drew and Simon will be very familiar with the debates going on internationally at the moment about policing, so bringing it right to the present, and can our forefathers be proud? They can be absolutely proud. Because the big debate, particularly in the US, is about the guardian versus warrior debate. And to have that philosophy of being the guardians of the peace and servants of the people, that's a debate that's current in policing internationally. And I think 100 years ago, we can be very proud of our forefathers who had this foresight to look at us as an unarmed police force and our society of having an unarmed police force that would serve as servants of the people with the moral authority of the people. And I think that was really forward thinking uh, at that time. And I certainly think over the years then bringing it into you know, yes, society, both the demographic of society, the values of society changed at such a pace. So John has brought, and Liam have brought right up to the 50s. And we probably did have a lot of that Ono Duffy legacy. And even as Liam's slides would have shown that, uh, you know, strongly Catholic GAA mentality. But society was changing and evolving at a pace that had never been seen before. The demographic, the values of society were changing. The police were there. Uh, you know, I, I have lots of colleagues here in the room uh, that would have joined in the 60s. And I can even remember in the 80s, there were still people living in dormitories when I joined. Uh, so, you know, that was a, a kind of a constant. But crime was a very interesting thing. So, yes, you had the prohibition. But I also think, if I can go back to the legacy for a moment, that strong connection with the community. It is what sets us aside and has set us aside for the past 100 years with police forces the world over. And over the years, when you would go to visit other police forces, they would come here to look and see what we'd done back to the 80s and the 90s. And they would be completely taken with the idea that we came through a civil war, that Irish society could actually manage to have a civil police force who were largely unarmed and yet deal with the threat of domestic terrorism, the troubles in the north, what prior to that would be categorised as the ordinary decent criminal, bank robberies and Sierra and different challenges that a lot of the people in this room had to face down and face up to. And then in the early 80s, Michael and I both uh, were in the district courts at the time on, uh, on different sides, we might say. <laughs> and, um, you know, to see the explosion of drugs yeah. and the human misery that that brought and how that actually impacted on communities right across the country, but particularly socially deprived communities. And the misery, the intimidation, the extortion that came with that, and how that then became the way for people to make their money and to be seen to be able to make money. So crime changed at a really fast pace in the 80s. And then, even then, it was very localised as regards it was in hot spots around the country. But at the same time, the police, the women and men of Angarda Shikona at that time were standing up, engaging in that very non-confrontational way with the community that was described to us with Sigarda John Rattigan. Uh, I wrote down his name, Liam, because I think that epitomises that spirit of community engagement that is the bedrock 
of what Angardi Shikana and the people of Ireland can be proud of as their police service. And I think it's one of those things that is envious to our colleagues, our peers all over the world. And having stepped outside of the policing arena, and I'm often asked about, you know, what is my uh, view, looking in the rear view mirror, I think it's one of the things that we as an Irish society can be so proud of and that we can stand up and be counted. And when we look at over the years as crime was um, progressing and as crime became more national than international and now transnational, we also had uh, terrorism, so we had the Troubles in the North, but then we had the resurgence of dissident republicanism and terrorism over the years, all through the 90s and into the noughties. And I suppose then we had the Celtic Tiger. And, you know, I've been asked recently about kind of the, is there an analogy between drugs and organised crime and terrorism? We now have narco-terrorism, and yes, there is, because that explosion of uh, money, and we can touch off the Criminal Assets Bureau and the murder of uh, your colleague, uh, Veronica Guerin, and how that changed that interface, but also working with international colleagues. Uh, you know, we had to find our way before the legislation was there to actually form relationships, firstly, with our colleagues, obviously, which is a long-standing relationship, our colleagues in the PSNI and the RUC before that, but also our colleagues in the United States, uh, in Europe, and in Great Britain. And that was, you know, kind of muddying our way through before there was legislation in the 90s and how, how could we do that? And also then looking at when the true internationalism came into organised crime and organised crime got far more violent because the money was much greater. And then finding ways and getting the support of the government and colleagues in the government, Nora was minister at the time, to actually be able to get the legislation and the resourcing to support that fight against uh, crime and terrorism was really important. Nora, maybe you might uh, touch off at that point, yes. uh, because it was 1996, uh, Veronica yeah. Guerin was murdered, we all remember that, and yeah. quickly thereafter the government well, the, moved. The, the murder of, of Jerry McCabe and Veronica Guerin happened very close proximity to each other in the, the month of June 1996, and it was a real wake-up call. I mean, it, it shocked the nation and it shocked the political system. And, um, you know, every day in the doll uh, between the, those two murders, issues were being raised, you know, what are you going to do, etc. Now, what hasn't been really uh, seen is that Rory Quinn and myself, as Rory was Minister for Finance, we had started some actions which we hoped would begin to pool the resources of revenue and the Gardaí and bring them together to work together because there was turf war. There was turf war between them. If the guards wanted to catch the people who were bringing in the drugs, the, the customs just wanted to get the drugs. And there were, there were a few big instances that, that caused a problem. So in January of 1996, a memorandum of understanding was really the commencement, was signed between Revenue and the Department of Justice. And that kind of started the ball rolling. But when the two heinous murders took place in June, um, there was a, a leap forward in that. And uh, John Bruton was Taoiseach and he said, we have to do something. And I have to say, the doll doesn't always, and uh, the Oireachtas doesn't always show itself up very proudly the way it fights and roars at each other in there. But in this instance, there was a really good working modus with, with the Oireachtas. And um, in two months or less, we managed to get the legislation in place 
to set up the Criminal Assets Bureau. Now, we had no examples of this because we were nearly the first in the world to bring together revenue, customs, social welfare or social protection, as it's called, and, and the Department of Justice. And there was, there was tension. You know, we had to bring in about four pieces of absolute main legislation, the Proceeds of Crime Act, the Criminal Assets Bureau, also an act in finance that the tax people would share information. If, if they knew you were not paying tax, but you were living a high life, they didn't have to tell anybody about that. So we had to bring in legislation so that information could be shared. And this, the Criminal Assets Bureau, there was a two-day debate in the Dáil. It was established more or less in July 1996 and began to work without all the legislation because they had to bring it into the Senate. And in October 1996, it was established. And it is now really an example for the rest of the world. In fact, the commissioner tells me that he could probably spend at least a day a week entertaining people from other countries who come to Ireland to find out how the Criminal Asset Bureau works. And it was absolutely phenomenal. And I went down the very first day, just to give you an idea. It was a bit like, um, I'm not trying to blow my own trumpet, but a bit like the, the meeting here in the, in the Gresham. I went down to, to Harcourt Street and I went down a corridor, very, all very secretly, and into a room. And it was the most rudimentary of rooms. There were three desks and I was introduced to man A, man B and man C. One was a guard, one was social welfare and one was revenue. And there was a big whiteboard on the wall. It was, there was no computers or anything. And there were three lines on it and one at the top of it said the guards, the next one said social welfare, revenue. And they each were putting their own bits of information and linking it up. Do you know this fella, Johnny so-and-so? And the revenue would say, oh yeah, we've never got a penny of tax out of him. Or social welfare would say, he's on disability. And the guards would know he was living the high life and had loads of money. So it was very, very simple, the setup of it, but it has served this country well. And in the same way, as, as Noring says, you have to adjust. Legislation had to be amended. When we set it up, the criminals were also looking at this legislation and finding ways, with the help of their accountants and lawyers, of how to bypass the legislation, how to get away. So very early on, we had to change the legislation when a case was taken by John Gilligan in the courts yeah. and uh, it was changed. So even since 2016, there's some changes and all the way along, the legislation has to keep pace. The criminals in the countries that we all know are wise people and if they would only use their wisdom to run the country we'd be in much better position but we have to do that and I often say to colleagues now in the Dáil I said don't sit back and think just because you've done that piece of legislation your job is done you have to mind the state and you have to mind the legal status and I think it was the late Veronica Guerin who did say in an interview that she did with Sean O'Rourke I'm pretty sure it was she yeah. could be corrected that you follow the money this was what she was yes. in terms of her approach to the journalism that was her, yes, her yeah, idea so yes. um, may she rest in peace mm. um, Commissioner um, you're at the forefront of a modern police force now uh, here for four years um, as you as Nora alluded to the fact that you could be talking about cab and all of that uh, all the time what was your impression of the Garda, Garda when you um, became, became Commissioner here? Uh, well, um, be diplomatic and nice. Yeah. Well, uh, for uh, for 34 years, I was a very close neighbour. So you know, and a lot of friendships and a lot of professional 
work I had done with him, Garda Shikana, down through uh, the years and in my service both in uh, South Armagh and Armagh and then laterally then in headquarters in crime. So uh, I had made a lot of connections and, and done you know, a lot of very successful work, not least here with Noreen as well. <laughs> so uh, I, uh, I, I knew that it was uh, a strong organisation. I always, I always felt the fundamentals were very strong and, and that's in part what we've outlined there today, the connection to uh, the local community. I, uh, I think one of the things that is a little unsung here is that um, guards have always recognised policing to be a very human endeavour and perhaps some police services have lost a little bit of that human endeavour and perhaps um, pursued outputs in terms of numbers and detections at the expense of that human interaction. Uh, but to Angara Shikona's credit, it has maintained that focus on the human side, the human endeavour, the human relationship, and everything else then, you know, ICT, restructuring, equipment, all of those assist, but the main focus should always be that we're here to protect people, and we do that best if we have secured the public's confidence. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the golden thread which emerges in the 20s and, and uh, in the 1920s and brings us through a century later to the point we are at the moment. And as, as has been said already, um, we should be an international, we should be an example to our international colleagues. We have a lot uh, to learn from others, obviously, but we have also a lot to showcase uh, to all our police services across the world. And increasingly, actually, people are coming to us. I know even today, uh, my colleagues in Human Resources, through a connection that Dan Marie uh, made with uh, colleagues in LAPD, they were talking about our outreach and our recent recruitment campaign. And even how did we achieve 40% uh, women applicants in our last programme? So yeah. there's a lot that we can say practically about um, what we've done. But I think the fundamentals are strong. And after that, then, it's about setting the right course and making sure that you keep hold of those principles. And even saying um, during COVID, that was very clear. Um, we could see what was happening in other police services uh, in the US and even in Great Britain, the difficulties they were uh, um, arising there, just in terms of public confidence in policing. But we at the very start, and, and uh, John Toomey's here was instrumental in this, John said one of the big pillars of what we should do should be about community policing and support to the community. And if we remember back to March and April of 2020, the amount of uncertainty and indeed, you know, real apprehension and fear and isolation and you know, we stepped into that place until and allowed then other agencies obviously then to come in behind us. But that, I think that made a really big difference to the public perception of then placing at times quite uh, difficult and indeed onerous regulations around uh, the medical emergency itself. But again, in doing that, we, adopt, we adopted you know, very much, you know, we talked about the four E's around engaging, engaging edu uh, education, encouragement, and the end enforcement. Well, for some people, we got through the first three E's quite quickly, and it, uh, <laughs> but for others, the great majority, we, had, we were able to deal with in terms of uh, engaging with and, and encouragement. And again, that's about our relationship. Uh, with the community that, that there, we're all there, proud to serve. There is something about uh, the sense of, um, well, if you're not a criminal, but the, the kind of reassurance you would have if you're, you know, in trouble or, you know, when the guards come around or when you ring the... I'm just thinking of my own experience. You kind of, 
you've been uh, attuned to the fact that you're probably going to see uh, a friendly face and increasingly, and I'll address this to you, Noreen, uh, a female friendly face. So your own story is uh, inspirational, but um, things are moving in the right direction for women in the force now, aren't they? Yes, I think they are. When I joined in 1981, there was less than 1% of the force of the service were women. And I think, again, picking up on that ethos of service, because I think that's a very important distinction to make. And at that time, it was seen as a force, less than 1% were women. And women were very much confined. I think you're not surprised when we saw Ono Duffy's statement <laughs> all those years ago. Uh, but also the doll debates. And, you know, I won't get into it because we could be here till midnight tonight but you know the minister touched off some of them earlier but you know the women of the west and I always wonder why the, some of the TDs want women of the west but now I realise actually uh, Liam thank you for that but quite seriously and the women at that time were confined A they wore skirts and kitten heels which I could never really understand until I joined the guards I never knew what they were so it was like joining an order on <laughs> and, uh, but also you know the, the conditions were very different so women were conditioned to work more or less in nine to five there were exceptions that if there were women or prisoners, female prisoners or children to be dealt with. But by and large, that was it. And by and large, confined to the bigger urban areas. And, you know, people may take for granted now some of the, you know, 40% of women applied in, in the last recruitment campaign. But over the years, a greater percentage of women and a greater percentage of diverse communities have applied over the years. And I think that's very much testament to the work that's done by the women and men of Vanguardia Chicana, because you're right, Anne. A decision was taken several years ago to place a focus on victims. And that was really important, enable, actually to be able to show empathy to victims. And some years ago, we included empathy and service as two values, because it was really important that actually people would understand we were there. And I know certainly during my time growing up in Angarda Shikana, when women looked to join some of the specialist units, quite frankly, there was quite a lot of pushback against it. I was very fortunate because I worked with men, some of them who are here, and I'll call out John Long in particular, and Tom and others, uh, that were very good, that had the vision to actually uh, see women as being equal partners in all of this. And I think that was really important. But it wasn't about me, it was about other women. And I think the women that joined in 59, I know I saw Catherine Clancy here earlier, the pioneers of women that went before us, they also paved the way to make it a little bit easier for us to be accepted. And I think, you know, once we got rid of, I joke now, but once we got rid of the skirts and the kitten heels, but then we were given men's trousers and shirts. So I'm actually not sure if you had a choice, what would you go for? Uh, but she used to make do. And, you know, trying to even explain to somebody that actually a man's shirt with two breast pockets and inverted pleat at the back isn't exactly, exactly very uh, flattering to the, human, the female human form. Uh, but actually that didn't seem to matter. But I think, you know, looking now and over the years, women are represented at every rank on Angarda Shikana. Uh, women are also re represented all of the specialist units and despite all of the challenges you know women are now in all of the the, the most specialist sections in Angarda Shikana but also on that note, I think, you know, there is um, a myth sometimes that the more specialist units, and it was touched off earlier, that actually they're not there policing the community, but actually everything on Garda Shikana does, whether that be the, the women and men who wear the uniform or the women and men who work in plain clothes or our civilian or reserve colleagues, 
everybody's business in Angarda Shikana. As a, a now a citizen of society, I know that everybody in Angarda Shikana is there to prevent harm, to protect the public and to serve the community. And I think particularly focusing on the more vulnerable uh, people in our communities. Yeah, so are there, are there, I don't even want to have a kind of reverse sexism about it, mm. but there are there aspects of policing for which uh, women are, are more suited. Is that a fair summation or is that you know, reverse sexism. I, I, I wouldn't go to say that far on, but I do no, think... No, I'm saying uh, it, but yeah. you can answer it any way you want. I, I, I think that, <laughs> yes, there are, but I think also there are people, so compassion and empathy are uh, values and emotions that are held, in my view and my experience, equally by women and men. And there are some women who are very good at it, but there are also some men who are very, very good at it. And I think that... Would I say that there are jobs that are more suited to men than women? As an absolute feminist, I would say no. no. <laughs> um, but they, I believe that actually there are people who are suited to jobs, irrespective of their gender. Mm -hmm. And I don't think it should be genderized. I think that there are women and men, and I think having the right people in the right place with the right skills to do the job that's required at that time is so important. And, you know, I've worked with uh, male colleagues over the years who have an abundance of compassion and empathy and in my experience will be very, very suited and have been very suited to that type of work and can build that trust and engender that confidence in people to come forward at their most vulnerable times and share some of their innermost secrets. Like, likewise, I've worked with women who have also had those, but I've also worked with both men and women who haven't had those um, emotions and that emotional intelligence, if I can put it like that. So I think uh, it's finding the right people with the right skills and being able to have them in the right places. And that's why I think as on Garda Shikana evolves. But I would like to just touch off something that was said because something we cannot take for granted as citizens is that confidence and that trust in Angarda Shikona. And we spoke about, the Minister spoke very eloquently about the uh, service last Saturday, last uh, Sunday, or Saturday, uh, where there were 89 members of Angarda Shikona who lost their lives in service. But also over the years, we've had a number of Garda colleagues who have been injured on duty and who have had uh, life-changing injuries on duty. Their families have been significantly impacted by it. And I think it's important that we remember that. But also, the, as Drew spoke about the trust and confidence of the community, it's something we can't take for granted. And that's what makes our transgressions over the years even the more impactful. And that, that potential to impact negatively on that trust and confidence. Because the men and women who go out to do the job need that support of the community. But they can't take it for granted to have it. And I think the Commissioner in his speech, his opening remarks earlier said, this is something that the members of Garchikana have to work at every single day. It's a very delicate balance to hold that trust and that confidence. But it's also, it's a mutually supportive relationship because to go out every day and do the job that the women and men and that we as citizens expect the women and men of Angarda Shikana to do, it is an extraordinary thing that we ask. And therefore, they deserve and need our confidence, but they also have to earn it every single day. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Well, I think we're coming towards the end, but I would like to um, ask the Commissioner about the future, <laughs> the challenges ahead, and return perhaps to our theme of the evening, which is, you know, has the Garda Shiakona lived up to the ideals of 1922? And I was wondering what your thoughts on that are. Uh, well, it was said earlier, I think um, perhaps a, in 1922, you couldn't have imagined what 2022 would have been and all the challenges 
which we now face. There is a golden thread, and it's, I think it's a connection to the community and public confidence in the Garda Shikana that brings us through the, 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 um, the intervening 100 years. But, but looking forward, I think, you know, we, even if we look at the last 10 years, how much more is happening internationally and how much more crime has actually been reported to us uh, from, the private, from the private place. And so crimes of domestic abuse, serious sexual assault, uh, child abuse of children online, uh, and also then crime being directed at an international level. So the big organized crime groups and cyber crime. So, you know, looking forward, we'll have to maintain, um, and we'll have to be very careful to maintain public confidence in this organization. But we also, uh, as Ireland and as the National Police Service of, of Ireland, have a responsibility to be seen to be, you know, a capable and competent partner to our international colleagues so that we can work on organised crime groups and dismantling their international operations and then also work with colleagues around things like cyber crime as well and dismantle uh, the threat from that as well as responding then to um, other issues which have talked which I mentioned already be it domestic abuse serious sexual assault uh, and child abuse so there's additional complexity that requires specialism in terms of training, etc. But what we want to be very careful of is that all our guards are seen and see themselves as community guards in the first place. Mm -hmm. And then that's how we build from there. That we have, a, we have a relationship with our society here, but we're also seen as a very competent and capable and willing partner internationally as well. And how critical is the fact that the force is largely unarmed, uh, Nora, uh, today as it was in 1922? I, I hope it will remain critical and I hope it will remain uh, the way it is. I wouldn't like to see every guard walking the street with, with uh, armed. Um, I think people feel, I mean, it's, it makes life very dangerous sometimes for the guards when they have to go into the middle of a, of a, of a difficult street fight or something and there mm. could be arms with those people and they, they're not armed. But it, I think it gives people confidence to feel that they are like us, they're walking the streets, they're protecting us and it's the power and the force of their own training and what they stand for in the community that stops people. I mean, even criminals will sometimes, or young fellas or girls that are having fights, you know, the guards appear in the uniform and the, it's just the uniform and the presence of them sometimes can bring that fight to an end. And, and I think, I hope that we will continue to, to keep an unarmed force um, for as long as life goes on in Ireland. And uh, Michael Staines, <laughs> what are your thoughts uh, when you consider the contribution of your grandfather and how his words have uh, sounded down through the last 100 years? Yes, but I think as I said, I think they were very, very important words and uh, they have been followed through and they're still here and they do seem to be formed part of the ethos of the, of the Garda Shikona. Um, I obviously I'm a solicitor. And I, I, I've known him myself, and many other people in the room have been in court together. I've been a defence lawyer, um, and I'm generally very impressed with with, with the Guardian. They're a very important part of the, that most important thing that we have in society, which is the rule of law, which is by is by far the most important thing we have in the society. And um, that's why when things don't go so well with the Garda Shikon, it's very very serious. Mm. But in general terms, I think they do a very good job and. Uh, it, it's, we're, we're safe with them and I think perhaps you know as, as they comply I suppose with what my grandfather said that hundred years ago I think that's been very very helpful 
Um, I'm just going to check that we are still on time. I'm just looking for... Uh, are we okay? Will we wrap? Mm. That's okay. <laughs> okay, so sorry, it's a bit of a technical thing. Normally I, I, I wasn't able to... forgot my timings. <laughs> Liam, Nora, Commissioner Harris, Noreen, Michael and John, thank you so much for taking part in this panel discussion. It's been a pleasure of mine to, to moderate it. It's been highly informative. Thank to you, uh, members, retired and current members of Ungarda Siakona and relatives and invited guests for being so attentive. Um, and I really would like you to put your hands together for our panel. So just before you leave, I have a small presentation to make to our panelists. So if I can, if you can come up one by one, it's going to be a little bit tricky. Space is tight, but we'll do our best. gentlemen that concludes proceedings um, I hope you all had a wonderful evening lots of interesting reflection points there and really interesting anecdote and discussion I'd like to thank our, our presenters and our speakers our panelists and also a big thank you to Anne Casson uh, for moderating for us and uh, it falls to me now just to wish you all a very safe journey home and uh, the best of luck thanks indeed and that concludes this broadcast. I do hope you join me again soon for another interesting discussion on the security threats facing Ireland and the modern world.